Turn with me to Titus chapter 2, if you will. Titus chapter 2, reading the entire chapter as we continue our study in the pastoral epistles. Only one more sermon after this. Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, let us give heed to God's word. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the Word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority, Do not let anyone despise you. This is God's word. Let us look to him in prayer. Father, we do pray for help by your spirit to understand the things of your word. Thank you that you've given us this great gift of your written word that we might learn, that we might grow, that we might know you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God's pattern of transformation is that he changes us from the inside out in our lives. And our text before us is somewhat like a sermon that is backwards. You're used to having sermons preached, for the most part, with main points and often applications to follow after that. But in our text, we have what we might say is the crux of the matter in verses 11 through 14 at the end. And the first part is application to specific groups in the church. And so in verses 11 through 14, we have this passage that summarizes the pattern of transformation that God brings about in our lives. And we want to look at that tonight. And then I want to, as we look at it, apply it to a specific area, in this case, of self-control, which is repeatedly mentioned in our text. What we're going to see is verse 11 speaking about how the grace of God is at the heart of our transformation. And then verse 12, speaking about that outworking 
of God's grace in daily life, in verse 13, speaking about the forward-looking orientation of this transformation. So we want to look at each one of those, and as we do that, we're going to look at uh, how this pattern of transformation applies to to the specific matter of self-control. Proverbs 25.28 tells us that uh, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. You and I don't have very much of an idea of what it would have been like to live in an ancient city that was constantly threatened by internal, external invasion by enemy armies and troops. But you can have some idea if you just think about how frightening it would be to not be sure whether you might be subject to attack at any time. And so it was vitally important for the city walls to be strong and for the soldiers who guarded them to be alert and not falling asleep. They would have been susceptible to any marauding band if they didn't have strong walls. Well, that's a picture for us in Proverbs of the person who lacks self-control. Self-control is not a favorite concept in our society. The message that we get from every side is, pamper yourself. If it feels good, do it. All your desires are okay and fine and simply part of being human. So don't feel any guilt about doing whatever you want to do. That's the message of the world. But in sharp contrast to our society, the Word of God speaks clearly about the necessity and the blessing of self-control. And so we want to look at self-control in light of this pattern for transformation. And we want to begin with verse 11, where we read about the fact that our transformation begins with God's grace. It's founded in the grace of salvation. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, and so on. True change begins with the transforming grace of God within. The grace of God here, you might say, is Paul's shorthand for God's wonderful work of redemption through Jesus Christ and the grace that came in Christ, God's unmerited favor shown to the world. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What does Paul mean, it has appeared? Obviously, he's referring to the coming of Jesus Christ in humility as a man. It's appeared to all men. All types of individuals saw him and experienced him, and it goes out to all the world. The gospel call goes out. And this grace makes people new creations in Christ, changes people in the deepest recesses of their hearts. It gives them a new love for God and others. It gives them new desires that are now according to godliness and God's Word. It gives people a whole new orientation in the way they live. We're told no longer living for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again. It gives them a new power to live because now they are indwelt 
by the Holy Spirit of God who works His will in their lives. And so what this verse is saying is that a changed life is possible because of the transforming grace of God. Self-control is possible. In fact, we're told in Galatians 5 that it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. That means it's part of the divine work of the Holy Spirit, which He produces in the Christian's life. But interestingly, here we find exhortations to it repeated again and again. In fact, three of the five groups that are addressed here specifically are charged to be self-controlled. So not only is it a Spirit-imparted grace produced by the Spirit, it's also a command of God that Christians are to work at producing in their lives as they depend on the Lord. It's interesting the way it's phrased in verse 12, it, grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace teaches us. Grace produces something in our lives. It's powerful. It clearly implies that there's a battle with sinful desire and sinful action that continues to go on in the Christian's heart and life. A battle with the temporary satisfactions and the sinful pleasures of this life. But the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. It's fundamentally transformed the Christian, and it has brought a deeper and a higher satisfaction so that now the Christian can actually begin to say no to worldly passions. Well, this first point helps us to avoid two extremes. If we see that the pattern of transformation begins with the the fundamental change that God brings in our lives, we will avoid two extremes. The first extreme that it will help us avoid is to fail to see that grace leads to a changed life. You can't experience God's grace. You can't experience faith in Christ and be unchanged by it. You can't experience the renewal of God's Spirit in his work of making us a new creation, and then be blind to the battle, for example, the battle of self-control in your life. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. It's something that God intends to produce in our lives. It's an important aspect of growing in faith in Christ. And if you don't see that there's got to be a connection to God's grace with your life, then you're going to neglect important areas of growth. You're going to imperil your spiritual life. You're going to leave yourself wide open to spiritual temptation and spiritual attack. You're going to be like a city whose wall is broken down and the enemy can just rush in. You know, and often in the ancient world, soldiers who fell asleep at their posts on the city wall were uh, put to death because it was such a serious crime. It was such a serious thing to allow the enemy to surprise them. And so often, Christians are like soldiers who easily fall asleep and are lulled into this sense of complacency, not realizing that God's grace needs to be demonstrated in our lives. And the error at the other side, at the other extreme, is to act as though 
the virtues that Jesus Christ wants us to, to see in our lives, to act as though self-control is all a matter of self-effort. This is the other extreme. No, we learn here that it's spirit-empowered. It's the grace of God that brings salvation that has appeared. It teaches us to say no. It gives us a new power in Christ. It gives us a deeper satisfaction. So don't, don't disconnect God's command about self-control from the context of His grace. We could say this about any area of spiritual growth. We could talk about this for all the fruit of the Spirit, the various aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. We could talk about it for all of the Christ-like virtues that Scripture commands for us to carry out. We can never disconnect our change that we need to be bringing about in our lives from the context of God's grace to us. Self-control must originate from, ex- originate from an experience of God's grace in our heart that you know God's love in Christ and that you are satisfied with Jesus Christ above everything else and He is your ultimate love and your joy. And so self-control is part of that God-centered, Christ-oriented foundation of your life. Now, I want you to understand how different that is from seeing self-control as a mere matter of willpower. Yes, certainly, the will is involved. You have to exercise your will. You have to resolve to please the Lord and seek to obey Him. But it's not mere human effort that brings about this kind of fruit of spirit in our lives. We must be pleading with the Lord for His help. We must be trusting in the Spirit's enabling power. We must be confessing our own weakness and guarding against our own pride, especially spiritual pride. And so this point shows us that we can avoid these two extremes and to to understand that the beginning of change, God's pattern is that it begins with His grace. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodly godliness. But secondly, from our text, we learn about the outworking of grace in life. And this is the main emphasis of this text with all the applications to the different groups Titus is is told to address. We find about the outworking of grace. Self-control must be a daily part of each of our lives. Verse 12 says, it, grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, it's very likely that Paul is contrasting this call to holiness with what he has said earlier in verse 12 when he's referred to what someone wrote about the Cretans whom Titus is ministering to. He says up there, he quotes someone and says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And then he tells Titus to rebuke them. In other words, what a difference it is from what he says about the Cretans in chapter 1, verse 12, to down here, to what he calls them to, to this life of self-control, godliness, to an upright life. 
how does grace work out in our lives? Well, take the example of self-control again and see that there are many avenues that we work out self-control in our lives. Verse 2 commands the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled. So older men are called to self-control. And then later on, down in verse 5, we see that younger women are called to be self-controlled as well. And it goes on to address them. Similarly, in verse 6, young men are called to be self-controlled. So it's a repeated theme here. And we could think of the, the different uh, avenues or ways that self-control needs to show up as we face various kinds of desires in our lives. In fact, I have uh, broken, broken it down into three major areas of transformation as we think about exercising self-control. We might call these three arenas in which the Holy Spirit is at work to produce self-control in our lives. The first is the arena of our body. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, we're told to honor God with your body. You've been bought with a price, so honor God in this way. And the context of 1 Corinthians 6 is the context of sexual immorality. So that's one area. There are many ways Christians are called to be self-controlled when it comes to the area of sexual temptation in their lives. What you look at, what you joke about, what you talk about, what you imagine and think. One of the best scriptural exhortation when it comes to sexual temptation is to simply flee. We're reminded of Joseph with Potiphar's wife when she made advances to him, and he simply fled. He even left his his outer cloak with her because she had a hold of it. Well, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, flee the evil desires of youth. Another aspect of this arena of bodily temptation would be our tongues. We taught a course here a few years ago called War of Words. It was using a book written by Paul Tripp about the battle Christians have to to exercise self-control over their tongues. I know that I could benefit from looking through and reading that book every few years. In James chapter 3, we're told that we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. So if you think that you're keeping your body in control, ask yourself, are you controlling that little part of your body called the tongue in what you say? That's a challenge, James says, that uh, you'd have to be a perfect man in order to do that. Uh, We we could add another aspect in this arena of the body in the area of what we consume, how we, what we eat and drink the whole matter of our bodily appetites for that and the matters of of gluttony and drunkenness, or we could talk about alcohol abuse or drug abuse. We could add to that the whole area of laziness. The Cretans were uh, apparently falling into this. Well, this is a major area of self-control. Are you lazy? And maybe it doesn't mean just not able to get out of bed all day, but Maybe it's the way you do your job. You know, I was reading the other day that businesses apparently lose millions of dollars every year to employees fiddling away the time at their jobs on the 
computer, playing computer games, sending emails, and these kind of things. So laziness would be another area. Another more pointed application possibly for us is laziness in terms of studying God's Word. That's an area that takes self-control. Maybe it takes getting up from bed and getting to the Bible before you eat breakfast, if you know that's the only time of the day that you're going to be able to get to it. Maybe it means actually having self-control to get into bed early enough at at, at night so you're able to get up early the next day. There's a quote from 1 Corinthians 9 where we read about Paul and how he runs the race. He's talking about runners running the race and says that, you know, we're all in the race. We are training to get the prize. He's using that analogy of running in the race. And at the very conclusion of that text in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, he's speaking metaphorically, of course. He's not speaking about literally beating himself in, in some way as a, as a monk might have done with whips or something like that. But still, he's saying, I exercise self-control over my physical appetites because that's part of the godliness that Jesus Christ has called me to, and I have to guard myself in that way. So, One arena is bodily self-control. Another arena would be the arena of the mind. The mind, in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, we read that we are to take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Jerry Bridges writes this as he talks about the need to exercise self-control over our minds. He says, our minds are mental greenhouses where unlawful thoughts once planted, are nurtured and watered before being transplanted into the real world of unlawful actions. Interesting idea, isn't it? He says your mind is like a greenhouse. You know, there are lots of greenhouses around here right now that have lots of flowers and shrubs and everything in preparation for planting this spring. And right now they're kept there because it's too cold outside. But our minds are like that, he says, and we are nurturing thoughts and desires in our minds. And if we continue to do that, he's saying those will be transplanted into actual behaviors, into actual deeds and words. We could go back over those areas of temptation we just mentioned, sexual sin, our words, gluttony, laziness, and we could trace them all to our minds. The principle is we could We must not allow in our minds what we would not allow in our actions. The tough thing about our minds and our thoughts is the fact that only God sees these. But eventually, thoughts begin to show up in our lives. Yes, only God sees, but for the person who loves Jesus Christ, that's the most important thing. God sees my thoughts. God sees my heart. And we can say with Psalm 139, you perceive my thoughts from afar. And before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. The person who has experienced the race of God is concerned about what God sees. In fact, he's more concerned about what God sees than what everybody else sees. 
Now, we don't always live that way, that's for sure. None of us do, but we need to aim for that in exercising self-control. We need to make Psalm 19, verse 14, our prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so we need to exercise self-control in our thoughts. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodly thoughts. Now, you can't, you can't control what thoughts may come immediately to your mind at certain times. But you have the choice of what to do with that thought when it enters your mind, to entertain it, to dwell on it, or to put it away. And really, the way to put away one thought is to replace it with a godly thought, maybe a scriptural thought. And so get rid of those thoughts that are not pleasing to the Lord. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We need to exercise self-control in guarding our hearts. The third arena is the arena of our emotions. We won't go into this in depth. We think about the areas of anger, resentment, self-pity, bitterness. And at the other end of that spectrum, the, other, the end of the emotions of joy and rejoicing in God. This is a command as well. Isn't it interesting that we're commanded to rejoice in the Lord? But we know that, likewise, that's a fruit of the Spirit. That's something that the Spirit of God imparts. Both of those are true. But in this arena of our emotions, we must seek to exercise self-control by the grace of God, by the power that He gives. Proverbs 16.32 says it this way, Better a patient man. A patient man is someone who is able to bring his emotions under control so that they don't rule him. Better a patient man than a warrior. A man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. You might think it would be a great feat if a man could almost single-handedly take an enemy city. The writer of Proverbs is saying, no, it's even a greater feat if a man is able to exercise self-control over his passions and emotions that can so easily get out of hand. And so in all these different arenas, what we're seeing here is that the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled lives. And we might think of it this way, we must give ourselves to obey God's Word with all of our might as we trust fully in His power with all of our might. Do you see that both of those can be true at the same time? Give ourselves fully to obey God's Word while we fully depend upon His power in us. We need to believe the Word of God is true and to resolve and determine to carry out obedience in life. And under this, I would also make the application in this regard. Take heed to small steps of growth and daily battles of self-control. As I've spoken to you about all these different areas that we can apply self-control in our lives and that God's grace is intended to change us from within, I hope that as you've thought about that, you can think about this coming week. And you might think of some particular area that I've spoken about and think, I know that God is putting his finger on that area of my life. I need to exercise more self-control there. Who of us, in fact, 
can think of areas that we need to be more self-controlled. We live in a society that is out of control. And so we need to march to a different drumbeat. But the application is this. It's very important that you think and you resolve to take small steps to growth in Christ. These Cretans that Timothy was working with, that Titus, excuse me, was working with, had a long way to go. They needed to grow in grace. They were, they were relatively new in Christ. They were brought up in a pagan society that was filled with all kinds of evils and wrongs. But the gospel had come. The grace of Jesus Christ had appeared. They were being transformed now by the, from the inside out as, as the grace of God worked its way out in their practice and life. But it takes small steps. They weren't going to be totally transformed and changed overnight. What small steps is God calling you to in the way of transformation this week? Think about that and apply it. Maybe it's simply a matter of self-control and prayerfully planning a way to spend more time in God's Word. Maybe it has something to do with anger or sexual purity or the way you eat or the way you use your time or time for prayer. And maybe your plan needs to include some small steps of accountability to somebody else who can be praying for you about this. I don't want you to think that if you have a plan, then your Christian life is a matter of mere human willpower and self-reformation. That's not necessarily the case at all. Yes, plan, but realize that the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And you're seeking to depend on Christ as you do that. Well, our final point brings, to, brings us to verse 13, and that is God's pattern of transformation keeps in view the ultimate hope. God's pattern of transformation keeps in view the ultimate hope. We've seen how transformation begins with the grace of God that has appeared in Christ. Then it works out in our lives in very practical ways. And then we always need to keep in view the ultimate hope. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And then it talks more about the grace of God appearing and how Jesus Christ came to redeem, redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people that are his very own. There's this element, though, in verse 13 of looking ahead to the final consummation. What we see here is that we work at being like Christ out of a new power at work within us, but we also work at being like Christ out of an assurance of our true destiny. Our true destiny is that Jesus Christ is going to appear and he's going to fully and completely transform us on that day. And so all the effort and the praying and the striving in this life to be more like Christ is not going to be in vain. It's going to be fulfilled. It's going to be consummated. No more sin. All Christ-likeness. The ultimate hope of every true believer is the anchor that keeps us founded on the rock. And it's the accurate and eternal perspective that enables us to see through the self-serving nature of our selfish desires. You see, 
if you go about your life this week and you keep calling to mind the fact that this life is passing away and Jesus Christ is soon going to see us face to face and we are going to appear before him and we are going to glory in him and it's that hope that enables us to keep going in the pursuit of holiness even when we fall on our faces, even when the pursuit of holiness is hard, even when we are racked with suffering and we must endure It's because we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, and how that enables us to keep on this path of transformation. In 1805, in November of that year, Lewis and Clark and their expedition had been on the road, so to speak, for a year and a half, and they were very close to their destination of the Pacific coast. You might say they were a stone's throw away, having come up the Missouri many, many, many miles, and now thousands of miles, we could say, almost 2,000 miles from St. Louis, coming over the Rocky Mountains, a very difficult experience, and coming down the Columbia Basin. Now they were in the Columbia River Estuary, which was almost the Pacific, and they get held up. They get held up in this little cove that uh, they were stuck in for almost two weeks. And as I said, they were just a stone's throw from the Pacific Ocean. But that was a problem because the water was so rough there. And so uh, Stephen Ambrose writes about this in his book. He says, For the next week and more, they were pinned down by the tide, the waves, the wind at Point Ellis. They were unable to go forward, to retreat, to climb out of their campsite because of the overhanging rocks and hills to do anything except endure pure misery. It rained for 11 days. At high tide, gigantic waterborne trees of cedar, fir, and spruce, some of them almost 200 feet long and up to seven feet in diameter, crashed into the camp. Fires were hard to start, difficult to maintain. The captains and men of the expedition looked more like survivors from a shipwreck praying for rescue than the triumphant members of the Corps of Discovery. Well, they're finally rescued by Clatsop Indians who are able to navigate all those tremendous swells of the, of the waves in that little campsite, and they sold them roots and other food until they were able to finally escape up the coast to the next campsite and finally the waters calmed some and they were able to get on their way. But the thing that animated them during that time and protected them and preserved them from utter despair was that the goal of their journey was at hand. They could smell the salt air. They knew the Pacific Ocean was there. They had already recognized familiar uh, landscape signs that ships had written about and talked about, so they knew that it, was in, that it was in reach. Well, they persevered for a human end. We persevere knowing an even greater glory awaits us. We know that there will be a culmination to all the striving, all the struggling, because the grace of God has appeared. It has given us salvation in Christ if we've trusted in Him. He's working it out in our lives, and one day we will see him face to face, and we will be like him completely.